We're going to go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. We're, we're actually getting back into the gospel of Mark. It doesn't sound like it, but we are because we've just finished the Olivet Discourse there in Mark chapter 13. But Matthew gives us an extra chapter of information that we want to include before we move ahead in Mark. And so we're in Matthew 25, and uh, these are um, parables that Jesus follows up behind the, the Olivet Discourse. Um, Matthew 24, verse 3 gives us the template, the outline that we've been using to move through the Olivet Discourse. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples, and we know from Mark chapter 13, this is Peter, James, John, and Andrew, came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So their three questions kind of form the outline for the Olivet Discourse for this sermon. What shall these things be? When, when's the temple going to be destroyed and these things immediately that you're talking about? Then what shall be the sign of thy coming? When will you establish your kingdom? And then what shall be the sign of the end of the world? When is all this going to be over and what happens next? And so we now move into these three accompanying parables in Matthew 25, the only place we see them. And to properly understand these parables, and I think this is a good reminder since it's been so long since we've been in these studies, There's a a great old word called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, that's our next slide. Hermeneutics is the science and art of understanding, translating, and exploring, I'm sorry, explaining rather, the meaning of the Scripture text. Simply put, this is rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what we're supposed to do is rightly divide the word of truth. Of truth. So let's let's go through quickly our Bible study principles that we've we've heard. First of all, distinguish between interpretation and application. Every scripture has an interpretation, and every scripture has but one interpretation. It only means what it means. Okay? Well, it means something different to me. No, it means what it means, but the application is what it may mean to you and what it may mean for you. For instance, 2 Chronicles 7.14, we love to quote that on revival. The interpretation of that verse is for the Israelites and Solomon's message that God has given him uh, as they dedicate the temple. That's the interpretation of it. But can we apply it to us? Sure we can. If you use the whole of Scripture, you see that God does bless when we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. That's the application. But there's only one interpretation. Okay, so make sure you distinguish between the two. Number two, secure your proper context. Now, what in the world do we mean by that? That's, that's what's being said or done in the previous and following verses that frame what's being said in the given passage. Are you taking into account historical, grammatical, canonical, and literary information? Remember, a text without context is just a pretext for a proof text. What does that mean? No context means you're just trying to make a scripture say what you want it to instead of what it actually is saying. Now, that's so easy to do, y'all. It is so easy to try and configure a scripture into what you want it to say instead of what it actually says. An entire generation in our country excused slavery by taking scripture out of context. An entire generation of our, of our, our nation now is trying to use scripture to justify these whacked out views that we're seeing today. 
You can take a scripture out of context and cram it into all sorts of shapes. What we're interested in is to know what actually thus saith the Lord. What does the Lord say? And then how do we obey it? All right, number three. When at all possible, look for a plain and obvious meaning. Now, there's not always going to be a plain and obvious meaning, but sometimes we can over-spiritualize something, can't we? You know, in the tabernacle, there's some things in the tabernacle that have spiritual meaning. And then there's curtain rings. You know what the curtain rings mean? That's what hold the curtains up. Sometimes a nail is just a nail. You know, so don't over-spiritualize things. There's, there's plenty of opportunity for spiritualization, but, but don't go too far with it. Don't look for something under the surface unless the text demands it. More often than not, the most obvious reading is the correct one. Like, for instance, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's pretty obvious what he's saying, isn't it? He's saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, let's find something deeper. There isn't anything deeper. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There you go. Number four, determine your audience. We're going to see a lot of this tonight. The intended audience is, of, of a given passage is very important. For instance, as we've been working through Matthew, we, we've noticed that's a Jewish audience. That matters. That matters in how we interpret it. Uh, when you read First and Second Corinthians, the type of people and the type of culture in which the Corinthians lived makes a difference into how you, how you interpret that passage of Scripture. The next, compare Scripture with Scripture. Compare Scripture with Scripture. The Scriptures are always their own best commentary. Look to other passages that inform what you are studying. Something I'm really excited about next semester in the school. I teach the ninth through 12th grade Bible class. And we are taking an entire semester to just teach these kids systematically the right way to study their Bibles. Just, just how to take a passage and break it down and see the interpretation versus the application and, and to, to do all. We're taking a whole semester to just teach them how to be biblically literate. Because these kids are going to be the ones that are making the, the decisions in this church in a very short time. So they need to know how to use their Bibles, don't they? I'm very strongly considering bringing that same study in here on Wednesday nights at the same time. Because we need it. We need it. Fundamentally, as a pastor, I'm always going to have a job because the Bible says I have a job. But, but in, the, in the best way that I can, I want to work myself out of a job to the degree that I want everybody to know as much about the Bible and more than I do. And I want them to know how to dig into it. You don't need me for that. That's not God's plan. Great, good churches study the Bible corporately like we're doing tonight, but great churches are made up of people that study the Bible privately. See. Then finally, define your terms. We've got to always know what we mean in any given term. And so often we get into faulty or even false doctrine or wrong thinking because we just don't understand what a word means. Okay, so Matthew 25, we're dealing with three parables. Now, let's be reminded what a parable is. A parable is a story made up of the, of the familiar, meant to teach a moral lesson or a spiritual truth that would otherwise be beyond one's understanding. 
Oftentimes, this is simplified as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The three parables that we see in Matthew 25 are the parables of the talents, the parables of the sheep and the goats, and then the parable, rather singular, of the sheep and the goats, and then tonight, the parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the ten virgins. And so we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse number 1. Matthew 25, verse number 1. Jesus is speaking. He says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily, I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Father, would you help me tonight to rightly divide your word of truth? This is this is a little bit of a difficult passage for many and certainly for me. But Lord, I pray that you would help me to navigate it and to, to unstring it in a way that, that's clear and useful and helpful, and most importantly, that's accurate. Lord, we've got a lot to cover tonight. Help me to go as fast as I can without doing disservice to the, to the passage. So be with us tonight, we pray. May Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask several questions, and this is going to fall in line with our biblical principles that we use to interpret a passage, okay? So question number one, to whom is Jesus speaking? The audience matters. The audience matters. Well, we know from Mark chapter 13 that he is speaking specifically to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. All four of them are Jews. And contextually in this passage, he's speaking to his disciples, and more broadly, he's speaking to Jews. And so when the audience is Jewish, we should be on high alert for a Jewish interpretation, shouldn't we? That doesn't mean there's nothing in here for us, but we need to make sure that we understand we are looking at this through a Jewish lens and from a Jewish perspective. Those elements of his parable that are confirmed in other parts of the New Testament as applying to the church are recognized as such, but primarily a Jewish audience demands primarily a Jewish interpretation. Okay? So we know to whom Jesus is speaking, these four disciples, and, and, and by extension, a Jewish audience. But then the second question, what is the primary subject of this, of this, uh, this parable? Well, grammatically, you find it in verse number one. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. So the subject of this parable is the kingdom of heaven. Now... What do we mean when we say the kingdom of heaven? Hear what I say to you. There are entire books written on that one question. 
What is the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God versus this versus that? I, I was so tempted to just dedicate an enormous amount of time into getting into all those differences and everything, but I'm not. So let's try and let's try and make it simple for our purposes. First of all, let's start with telling you what the kingdom of heaven is not here. It's not heaven. The kingdom of heaven just means it belongs to heaven. It doesn't mean it is heaven. We're not talking about something that is going on in the third heaven. Okay? Number two, he's not talking about the church. There are some that believe that the kingdom, the only kingdom we're going to see is that that we usher in on the earth ourselves by our good works and making it. No. No, that's not what this is talking about. The purpose here is not a deep study of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. Here's what we can be sure that the kingdom of heaven is by three elements that it contains. Okay, number one, the kingdom of heaven has a literal ruler. A literal ruler. Okay. Number two, it has a literal realm, an area over which this ruler rules. And number three, it has literal residence. So what, what is the kingdom of heaven? It has a literal ruler, a literal realm, and a and literal residence. And if these elements are true, and we know that it's not heaven or the church, it can only be referring, I believe, to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. I believe that Jesus is teaching this Jewish audience about his kingdom on earth. It's important to understand, the Jews, they didn't have a whole lot of understanding or even interest about the subject of the rapture. The rapture is something for the church. They were interested in Messiah setting up his kingdom. That's what they're after. Okay. So what is the primary subject? I believe he's talking about events leading up to the millennial kingdom. And this is something that's getting a lot of traction here lately. There's a whole lot of amillennialists popping up and postmillennialists and, and all this kind of thing. And there's a, a new assault on dispensationalism and all of that. It, it just it, it seems like as we get closer to the end, there's more opinions out there. Well, then let's move to the third question. What are the significant personalities and or terms of this passage? As we've read through this passage, who are the significant personalities and the significant terms that we need to define? Okay. All right, let's begin first of all with those that are mentioned. Those that were mentioned in the passage, all right? First of all, you've got ten virgins. Ten virgins. Is there significance in the number ten and in the split of five and five? I don't know. Maybe. I can't be dogmatic about it. But I do know this. The Jews viewed the number 10 as a number of completion. How many commandments are there? Well, there's 613. But the condensed down, how many commandments are there? 10. Do the 10 commandments pretty much cover how we're supposed to live? Yeah. But I'll tell you something else that's interesting to me. In Numbers, was it 13? 12 spies went in. 12 are bad, 2 are good. 
How many did it take to establish that the Jews, the Israelites, weren't going into the promised land, that generation? Ten. But what about Joshua and Caleb? They wandered for 40 years just like everybody else did. Out of those ten was this established. So it seems to me that, that if anything, maybe these ten virgin, virgins represent the totality of the Jewish existence within the tribulation. Okay? That's the closest I'll come to saying it means anything. But who are they contextually? Who are these ten virgins? And we'll get into, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to get into why I think it as we move into this thing. Who are they contextually? I believe that these ten virgins, well, let me back up. Y'all pray for me. There's a lot going on here, and I want to handle it right. These ten virgins in the story are awaiting the celebration of the return of the bridegroom to his home. The bridegroom has gone off, and now he's coming back, and they're awaiting the return of the bridegroom to his home. Now, a lot of people see that as the church awaiting for Jesus to come back and get... No, you've got to take the church out of this. Okay? Got to take the church out of this. What do they have with them? All of these virgins have lamps. Now, these are a little bit different than the lamps we think of. We think of those, those you know, the pottery, the, the clay lamps. It's got the little wick at the end, and you pour the oil in. It's not quite the same thing. These are more like torches. They're, they're correctly called lamps, but they're more like torches. And what you would have is you'd have this long stick, and then you'd have something that was flammable around the top of it, and then you would dip it in oil, and you would light it, and it would burn. And that was traditionally what they would use in wedding celebrations are these torches. These were the same kind of torches that they had when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Same thing. Okay, So all ten of them had these torches, these lamps. What do these lamps represent? I believe, I believe these lamps represent the Word of God and its testimony in their lives. Why do I believe that? Let me give you a couple of verses. Psalm 119.105, thy word is a what? A lamp under thy feet and a light under my path. And then we put that together with our testimony. Mark chapter 5, verse 4, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter, chapter 5, verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I believe these lamps represent the Word of God and its testimony in their lives, just as it would us. So all ten of them have lamps. Okay. But only five of them have oil. That's verses 2 through 4, we see that. The five wise virgins have oil that they took with them, but the five foolish virgins took no oil. Now, those that have studied the Scriptures know that almost without exception, oil is a type of who? Almost said what? The Holy Spirit. I just spent three weeks convincing you he's not a what? It's a type of the Holy Spirit. And I sat down to pick out some verses that pushed to that conclusion, and I, I decided to do this. 
About 60 times from Leviticus 14.6 to Hebrews 1.9, you have verses that speak to the Holy Spirit's actions that mirror that of oil. So get to reading. But we see it all through the Scripture. So you put these two together, the lamp and the oil. It represents the testimony of a life that's ignited by the Word and dwelt by the Spirit. Okay? Can you hold on to that for a little bit? Because we'll come back. I know this is super academic, but stay with me because at the end it kind of picks up some speed. You say, the lamp and the oil represents the testimony of a life ignited by the word and indwelt by the spirit, Philippians 2 verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. What are we talking about? We're talking about testimony, aren't we? among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. (laughs) Is that not what people are supposed to be doing? Now, something else about all these virgins we see in verse number 5. We see all ten of them slumbered. All ten of them went to sleep. Now, we're tempted... We're tempted to look at that and say, oh, shame on them. But I don't see anything in the passage that indicates that this slumber was something to be indicted for. You wait long enough for anybody, you're going to go to sleep. You've probably at some point seen me in the parking lot at Walmart. My wife goes in, runs in to get something. I go ahead and lean the seat back, lock the doors because I don't trust anyone. And I snooze. I don't think they did anything wrong. I think it just indicates an inactivity as they're waiting for the bridegroom. But then what happens? They're awakened with a cry that the bridegroom has returned. Okay? So that's the first characters we see are these ten virgins. Then the next character is the bridegroom. Verse number 5 is the first time we, we see him. Well, he's mentioned in verse 1, but verse 5, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, verse 6, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. So who's the bridegroom? Remember, we're talking to a Jewish audience, so who would they see as the bridegroom in this story? Messiah. Messiah. And you do have places in Scripture in which Messiah is referred to as one who is marrying them or a bridegroom. Let me give you just a couple. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy maker, capital M, thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. Something a little more succinct, Hosea 2.19. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. 
It's a verse that pops up in weddings a good bit, not for nothing. Okay? So who do we know as Messiah? What do we call him? Jesus. Jesus Christ. So who's the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. In fact, he calls himself the bridegroom. You remember Matthew chapter 9? When they, when they asked him why his disciples don't fast, what was his response? Verse 15, and Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom, that's me, he's saying, is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So who do we see Pointed out. What's the word I used? <laughs> mentioned. The mentioned. The ten virgins and the bridegroom. But did you know there's also a couple of people that are, or groups, that are not mentioned, but it's implied that they're there? Did you know that? How about this one? How about the bride? We'll find out in a minute why this is true. But at this point in the, in the, in the ceremony, there's going to be a bride there too. You got a bridegroom, you got a bride. Who's the bride? The church. Now, Jesus doesn't mention us because we're not germane to what he's trying to teach them as Jews. But we're there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones." For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. There's somebody else that's there that's not mentioned, but I believe he's there. I believe there's a best man. He's not mentioned. But I believe he's there, and I'll tell you why I believe he's there. Because he talks about being there. His name's John the Baptist. I believe at the marriage supper, John the Baptist is the best man. Why do I believe that? John chapter 3, verse 29. John says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. What's he saying? That's me. He's the one that told them about him. (laughs) Well, it's not in the text. No, it's not. But I believe he's there. That brings us to our fourth question. What's the narrative of this passage? So let me just give you a quick synopsis of what we see here, and then we're going to figure out what we're going to have our so what after that, okay? Ten virgins have gathered to celebrate the return of the bridegroom. While all have lamps, only five have oil in store. They fall asleep awaiting the bridegroom's appearance and are awakened 
They all prepare their lamps and even get them to begin burning. But the five foolish virgins realize that they have no oil and their lights soon go out. They beg the wise virgins for a share of their oil, but the wise virgins refuse and tell them to go buy their own. While they attempt to do so, and I do mean attempt, they attempt to do so, the five wise virgins go into the wedding feast and the door is shut. The foolish virgins come later to find the door shut, and the bridegroom refuses to open to them as he does not know them. And Jesus ends the parable with a warning in verse number 13. That's the narrative. Okay? So then our fifth question. What is the proper interpretation of this passage? When we read Matthew 25, 1 through 13... What should we understand as the interpretation, and then what should we understand as the application? I've given you a whole lot of information. Let's put it all together. First, we ask this question, well, who represents what? The bridegroom is obviously Jesus. I think we'd all agree on that. That's the bridegroom. Who are the ten virgins? I believe, and good people disagree on this. Good people. Now, somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong, and we'll get to heaven and find out, you know, who's right and who's wrong and faulty doctrine. And to be wrong on this would maybe be faulty doctrine, but it's not false doctrine. You can be wrong on this and still love the Lord, be saved, go to heaven, okay? But this is what I believe. I believe these virgins represent Jews that were exposed to the gospel in the tribulation. And I've gone all over the place with this, and this is where I landed. The five wise virgins have a testimony, their lamp, that is energized by the Holy Ghost, the oil. They are saved and are guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is quite a, this is quite a shift for me because for years I believe the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in heaven, but I don't believe it does. It takes place here. So, yeah, an old dog can learn a new trick every once in a while. Do you know why I always believe that? Because that's what I heard preachers say. Be really careful. Be like the Bereans. Search the Scriptures daily. See whether these things are so. Even tonight, go home and search this thing out. And if you see it differently, then come on, let's go. No, we won't do that. But These five wise virgins have a testimony. they got a lamp that's energized by the Holy Ghost, the oil. They're saved and are guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the five foolish virgins, they don't have any oil. They don't have any Holy Ghost, which means they're not saved. But wait a minute. They initially had a lamp. They initially had a light. That's true. And everybody does. It's called being made in the image of God and the basic morality that comes with that. But it doesn't last long. Why, why are people not just killing them? Because we're made in the image of God, and there's a certain holdover in that that keeps us from, most of us, from going crazy. But that's not sufficient to get you into the wedding. And so that lack of oil, that lack of the Holy Ghost, soon fizzles out. And what maybe even was a profession doesn't last. They're lost. And they're excluded from the marriage supper, and ultimately they're excluded from heaven. Notice that 
The five foolish virgins asked for oil from the wise virgins. You can't transfer the spirit one to another. You've got to get him yourself. The sleeping of the virgin seems to me to point, if we're talking about Jews, that relative inactivity of Jews spiritually during the church age and into the tribulation. Think about it. You don't hear a lot about the Jews right now. Why? Because God hasn't turned his attention back to them yet. I mean, certainly he still attends them as he does to any individual, but as far as a nation, they're asleep. They're asleep. Now, some of these folks are lost, and the vast majority of Jews at the moment are, sadly. How do they still recognize the bridegroom when he shows up? Because the Bible teaches that when he comes, they'll know exactly who he is. Saved or unsaved, they'll know who he is. Harkening back to Zechariah 12.10, Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. They'll know exactly who he is. Okay, Andy, you've given us all kinds of information. Is there a key that unlocks this passage? Is there something that you have seen or you have studied that have led you to these conclusions? And the answer is yes, and I'm going to give you what I think is the key to this passage and to understanding it. The key, I believe, is the historical context of a Jewish wedding. You want to understand this passage, you need to understand how a Jewish wedding worked. A Jewish wedding had three parts. Number one was the contract. Now, in their way of thinking, mom and dad got together with another mom and dad, and they arranged this thing. They put it on paper, sometimes when they were very young. But did you know that that contract, that betrothal, was as binding as any marriage, and in order to get out of it, you had to be divorced? You see that talked about with Mary and Joseph. In fact, had Joseph died before he and Mary actually came together, she would have been considered a widow. That's a, this is not like a regular engagement. It was a binding contract that had not yet come to full fruition. Then what would happen is the bridegroom would come to the bride's home. The bridegroom would come to the bride's home. Then... There was another big celebration, and the bridegroom and the bride would return to his home, the bride in tow, and the marriage is fully enacted. That's how a Jewish wedding works. So let's, let's plug that in theologically. When was the contract? The moment you got saved. The moment you got saved, you're as good as married. Is it fully realized yet? No. Do we and Jesus live together yet? No. Do we have all the benefits of this marriage yet? No. But are we married? Yes. Then, now follow me on this. As in a Jew, just as in a Jewish wedding, the spousal carried the weight of marriage, your moment of salvation is bound, has bound you to the bridegroom for eternity. Then one day, phase two kicks in. 
the bridegroom comes with us, his bride, to our home. Where's our home? It's not here. Where's our home? How do I know that? John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Where's my home? It's not here. It's there. So the second phase of this wedding is when the bridegroom and the bride go to her home. See? Then what happens? After seven years, the final phase will occur when we return with the bridegroom to his home. You say, wait, wait, wait. His home's heaven. No, that's our home. This is his home. Why would I say that? Psalm 24.1. The earth is whose? The Lord's. The fullness thereof. Do you understand this whole thing? All of this is meant to redeem earth. In Revelation, when it talks about who's worthy to open the seals of this scroll, what's the scroll? It's the title deed, not to heaven, but to earth. So what are we seeing? I got saved. That was a contract. The rapture or the resurrection of my body at the rapture takes me to my home. That's phase two of the wedding. Phase three, when the bridegroom's coming back to his home with us in tow, that's what's being talked about here. And the Jews on earth, still alive through the tribulation, will see their Messiah coming. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Some wise ones will have trusted in him. They'll be full of the oil of the Holy Ghost and will be permitted to go into the wedding feast. Some sadly will not have trusted in him. They'll lack the oil of the Holy Ghost and not be allowed into the marriage feast. The point for us all, Jew, Gentile, saved, lost, the church, whatever, is in verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. That's the so what. Now for Peter, James, John, Andrew, the Jewish audience, that's talking about when he returns in glory to set up his kingdom. For us, the application is, watch those eastern skies. Now, I'm not going to revisit all of these things next week. So the message is not going to be nearly as long, I don't think, next week. But we're going to apply the same principles. Okay, the talents. What's he talking about there? And then the sheep and the goats. What's he talking about there? And then we put them all together and we get the the great big so what of what we're supposed to do with that. And then we go back to Mark. And we move quickly. 
the Lord's table, the Garden of Gethsemane, the mock trials, the beatings and scourgings, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the Great Commission, the Ascension. And then we'll be done with Mark. So anyway, that's the first parable. I think 757 is pretty admirable for four pages of notes. I think. So I think I deserve a cookie. One of those back there. Good night. They brought some food for the teachers today. Those cookies. I, I actually feel like I almost maybe I ought to ask the Lord to forgive me. Those cookies were so decadent, almost sinful. Anyway.